0: Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tent Maker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family owned, family operated, and European made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure.
1: Additional support is provided by Loa Boots, proud to support the cutting edge in the American Alpine Club. Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And by Polar Tech, celebrating their 30th anniversary with the return of the legendary PolarTech Challenge grants. And Gnarly Nutrition, whose newest product, Fuel 2.0, is the all-in-one fueling solution for long days in the mountains. This is Dougald McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. This episode is special to me because all three climbers involved are from New Hampshire, where I learned to climb a long time ago. In those early years, I was especially interested in ice climbing and winter mountaineering. New Hampshire's mountains may be small, but the winter weather is fierce. It's a place that teaches you a lot about living with the elements and just getting it done. It embodies that old saying, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Our guests this episode, Ryan Driscoll and Justin Guarino, traveled from New Hampshire in April with Nick Aiello-Popeo, to attempt the north face, the Medusa face, of Mount Neocola. This is a small mountain for Alaska, under 10,000 feet, but with a fierce reputation. It's a mountain so obscure that geographers can't even agree what range it's in. Some say the Aleutians, some say the far southwest tip of the Alaska Range. It wasn't even climbed until 1991, when James Garrett, Lorne Glick, and Kenan Harvey found a route up the west face. Kennan returned in 1995 with Topher Donahue to attempt the North Face, which rises about 4,000 feet, much of it very steep. They used a portal ledge and found climbing ranging from 510 to A3 to wild ice climbing and mixed moves. On day three, they made a push for the summit, but at midnight, near the top of the face, they were pinned on a tiny ice ledge by an increasing storm. They began their escape the next morning. In 25 days in these mountains, their longest stretch of clear weather was 24 hours. As far as we know, this face wasn't attempted again until 2019, when Ryan, Justin, and Nick made their first try. In April of this year, they planned another attempt, but their base camp was destroyed by an avalanche and they narrowly escaped with their lives. They flew home to New Hampshire and then, amazingly, they flew right back to the Neocola Mountains and headed up again. Remember, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Ryan and Justin shared the full story of their two attempts, their wild climb of the Medusa face and their descent of the unknown East face with the AAJ's Chris Kalman. Enjoy.
2: Justin and Ryan, thanks so much for making the time to sit down and chat with me. Super psyched to hear more about your recent climb of Mount Neocola because it sounds and looks like just an amazing face out there in Alaska. And from just talking a little bit to your partner, Nick, it sounds like the climbing was absolutely spectacular. So thanks thanks a lot for joining me.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So to get started here, I was
2: wondering if you could just paint the picture about where this place is. because. Alaska is a really big place, and um, even as you start to get down into the ranges, like each range is huge. So so where exactly is Mount Neocola, and what's it like getting there? Want to take this one, Ryan?
0: Yeah. Um, it is on the north side of the Cook Inlet, but to get there, you have to drive from Anchorage down to Kenai, which is on the southern side of the Cook Inlet, and then we fly back across the Cook Inlet to get in. What's the
2: climate like around there? Is it super wet, like a lot of the Pacific Northwest?
0: It's uh, really stormy there, right, Ryan? Yeah. um, I guess that range is kind of famous for sustained storms. Like, um, if you read the report of Topher Donahue and Kenan Harvey, when they were in there, they said that I think it was like 20 out of 25 days were stormy.
3: <laughs> yeah, we experienced that ourselves too. We have, yeah. We got stormed on
2: hard. So, aside from the storms, it, like it doesn't seem to be a super well traveled region in spite of some decent coverage in the American Alpine Journal.
0: Why do you guys think that is? I would say um, there has been coverage of it, but it's smaller. Um, and, I, you know, in, in my experience, like uh, a lot of people kind of forget that prominence of a mountain is like actually how big it is when you're standing next to it. So, you know, like those mountains are, are smaller than the central range mountains, but then again the glacier's a lot lower. So like the mountains are kind of just as as big when you're there. They just uh you know on a on a map or reading about them, they uh, don't really have very impressive altitudes. Gotcha.
3: Also like it's very dense, kinda confusing range and like without Going in there, it's hard to know what's in there, and and like the information's a little difficult to cipher through, and only like a handful of the peaks are being climbed on, and some of them just look so uh, difficult that you just question if they're even summitable, you know, for the future or wow. what have you, and like so we've just been looking across at like some of these unclimbed peaks or seldom climbed peaks, and we're just like
2: holy cow. Well, what makes them look unclimbable? Is it a lack of systems that kind of continue up or rock quality or, or like steepness of face?
3: Yeah, just like bad rock, deep snow. And, uh, and honestly, just from afar, you know, they just appear to be so difficult. And they're shields of stone that look impenetrable. There's all kind, like, you name your difficulty, you can find it there, you know. But it's also very dangerous, you know, like, uh, as far as narrow valleys, right, and overhead hazard, and it's just like, and not well charted also. So if I, you know, in, under, you know, what I imagine be more difficult to be rescued out of and there's less information just generally for everybody on this so it's like if you go to the central alaska range you can find plenty of adventure and there's a little more trodden territory so you can feel a little more comfortable which we climbed there to get our feet wet and then just happen upon this place um by a lot of things lining up
2: can you talk to me a little bit about that how'd you guys first come across mount neocola and and the neocola range and uh, how many years ago was that, and, and what was the evolution from that point to where you ended up trying to make some attempts on the wall?
0: I guess I can field this one. So in 2019, I was supposed to go on a trip with my friends Michael Waitshirt and Elliot Gaddy, and uh, unfortunately Michael's apartment that he was living in burned down. So he couldn't go and yeah, yeah, that was rough. Um, and so, so Elliot and I were like, well, we don't want to go on this trip that we had planned with Michael. And Elliot was, he just texted me a few pictures of, uh, the Citadel, which is just one glacier over from, from where we were on this trip. And he was like, you know, this place looks pretty cool. Uh, there's like a bunch of unclimbed stuff in there and I just signed on. I was like, Oh yeah, cool. Let's, let's do it. And, and Elliot and I went in there and ended up finishing a a route that some guys had tried on the Citadel. Um, so that was really cool. Elliot and I did that in two days and the whole time at base camp, I was kind of looking across at, the upper north face of Neocola and, and actually from the summit of the Citadel is I ended up, I got this picture of the north face of Neocola, which ended up being like pretty, pretty great to have because we could see the whole face from afar. Um, not, not the foreshortened view. And then let's see, Elliot and I were only in there for like seven days and we got out and I actually flew home and, I don't know, did some stuff, and then I I flew back to Alaska with Justin and Nick, and we were gonna go climb on Mount Foraker, and uh the weather looked awful in there. And I showed Nick a picture of the north face of Neocola and he was like, Wow, that looks awesome. And then then we we went out into the the yard of the house we were staying at and very rudely woke up Justin and like shoved my phone in his face and was like look at this dude and you know Justin was like (laughs) yeah okay and so that was that was like how we came to our our first trip in there or my second trip but our our first trip to um to the north face of Neocola yeah the lobster claw the lobster claw the lobster claw glacier was that 2019 then your first trip to the lobster claw that was 2019, yeah. So, so it was like Elliot and I climbed the Citadel, and then it was like a week and a half later, Nick and Justin and I flew into the Lobster Claw,
3: and then set in the storm, like the bad weather, just like was written about, like we were talking
2: about. <laughs> yeah. So, what what happened on that trip? You guys just did you get totally skunked by weather? Or? No, we we stayed there
3: for something like two. three, two weeks through a storm we had done like a little reconnaissance up to the face uh, trying to suss out the valley over a few days and we had made tentative plans to climb and we then got pinned down by this storm um which like we we're saying it's like i just imagine it to be this interior you know weather that's also meeting on the front of the sea the cold sea out there and these this mountain sits like right in the middle of that like the most tumultuous zone and so we just waited out and waited out like over 10 days and then that's when we made our attempt on the wall and we attempted it in alpine style and we pushed high on the wall we climbed about a third of the wall Um, a handful of m6 head walls and snow ramps and uh some ice fields and we um Had been outfitted with our technical kit for climbing on Mount Foraker. So it was a much lighter wall rack, as well as down sleeping bags. And so we had nowhere to set up a tent on this steep base. And we're in a spindrift storm, which we had been in all day because the weather, that's as good as we were going to get that season. And we get to a tiny little patch of snow and we're able to burrow in and make. A little hole for the three of us to crawl in just like very tight quarters with about an inch or two on the outside wall protecting brave Nick who was laying on the outside the whole night as the spindrift avalanches were coming down. And it's kind of like that endless day. So, you know, like he's still getting that glow from the sky outside and he's like seeing the whitewash over the walls and our hole is filling in. So we're just oh, no. like we wake up in the morning and just things are desperate. We're okay, like we're we're warm enough, but our bags are soaked out because we have brought our lightweight down sleeping bags. Right. So we bravely packed our bags and we thought that we continued to poke up and around, but it just soon became apparent to us that we were too exposed now with our lightweight lightweight now soaking wet kit, and so we descended. Um, and then sadly, upon uh, return to base camp, uh, our partner, Nick, had had a relation, an uncle, I believe, passed away. So he had flown home to be with his family and we all flew out together as we were also pretty um, worked from that whole, or- whole ordeal.
2: And uh, then, yeah, then the pandemic. <laughs> right. And then the pandemic happened, <laughs> and then the pandemic happened, yeah, um so let me just ask a quick question uh you guys uh, uh presumably at that point uh in twenty nineteen you knew that Topher Donahue and Ken and Harvey had come pretty close on this face, which uh I guess is called the Medusa face. And, uh, I think it, I think they wrote in their, in their short article for the Alpine journal that they basically climbed the face. So in 2019, were you guys following their route? Yes, we were following their route. We knew about their route as well. They had helped direct
3: us in there with their write-up. So thank you for the write-up. It had definitely spurred
2: on the, uh, drive to get there with that epic story for sure. So this is something that I'd like to get into a little more at the end, but I find this really interesting because most people who are climbing like high-end alpinism, at least in my knowledge, aren't really traveling around the world and whatnot to repeat routes.
3: Um, I think
0: we're just adventure hunters. (laughs) I'll speak for myself. Our friend Freddie made a good point one time. I think he said, if you only ever go for first ascents you're missing out on a lot of good stuff and there's a lot of second ascents or whatever finishing something off like I don't think any of us ever really cared like Topher Donahue and Kenan Harvey said that face was way out there and totally awesome and like it was and it is so we're just
3: We were just elated to have the opportunity to be out there and, you know, uh, have a chance to climb something like that. So it was just like the adventure that we happened upon. We weren't—I don't know what any of us may have been seeking, um, but—but to be clear, um, we did do the first ascent of the wall, um, and we can talk about more about that later. But we found evidence of their ascent because we followed their ascent. The entire way given that it was the line of weakness and uh, there was a long ways to go up that wall a lot of technical pitches a whole day of climbing
2: yeah that that sounds like a great segue so so you guys got pretty far up in 2019 bailed eventually after the endless spindrift storm COVID happened and then didn't you get like an American Alpine
0: Club grant to
2: go back there in 2021
0: We did. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't even have really thought to do it, but Nick was like, Hey, maybe you should apply for the cutting edge grant and Justin had suggested it too. And, um, I thought it was like kind of a long shot, I, but, uh, yeah, they gave it to us. We thought it was a good proposal though, in the current, you know,
3: climate to like just be promoting climbing somewhere that, you know, was safer than or less burdensome, you know, for a potential foreign country for
2: us to be traveling there. And so you guys, uh, went in there in 2021 in April, April 1st, April fool's day. <laughs> Do you feel like someone was, uh, fooling you or, or playing a trick on you when you woke up in the middle of the night to your whole camp, getting, getting like shoved down the
0: glacier. Uh, I just, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All of us just thought we were about to be buried really deep and then die, which was, yeah, that was a (laughs) pretty bad way to wake up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you'll have to forgive me for joking about it. Um, For those of the listeners out there that don't have any idea what we're talking about at this point, can you paint the picture of what happened on your first time in there this year?
3: Yeah. So we were nestled in our cozy in our sleeping bags we had been on the glacier now for a few days we had skied up and stashed gear at the base of the wall we were just having sweet dreams of climbing that face when in the middle of the night an avalanche cuts across this massive east face which is about five and a half six thousand feet tall it's it's huge launches down the face and we are woken up being hit by the air blast and the aerosol of that avalanche, which had landed at the base of the mountain, maybe three quarters of a mile away. And uh, it was a really crazy sensation because it was the very loud noise as something you would imagine an avalanche to sound like rushing over us. And we were being tumbled headlong and but there was it was completely black and we had woken up from the deepest sleep. And so when it's all said and done, it was maybe only 20 seconds or less. But it just seemed like eternity in the strangest places to be mentally. So we woke up and to hear um, that we were all okay was just like unbelievable. It's just so lucky. And, uh, but now we were launched into a survival situation because our tents have been crushed. I'm just in my long underwear. I'm in my tent. You know, I hear my friends' voices. Uh, I don't have my headlamp on me. I don't have my in reach in my pocket, you know, my satellite communication with the outside world. I don't have my phone. And so I have to start finding things in the dark, and I've got snow filling my whole tent. I don't know if I'm going to find anything. I find a phone, which gives me light. and I get dressed. It's my first priority. But to get dressed, to realize that my mountaineering boots had been in my vestibule, not technically inside my tent. So now I don't have mountaineering boots. It's, it's, the storm is picking up in intensity before dawn. Nick is wrapped up in his tent so tight that he can't get out. He's okay. He can't get out of his tent. I'm starting to try and help Nick out of his tent. Ryan. So thankfully um, with sensibility went and found my boots, which had been partially buried and were continuing to be buried, but in five minutes would have just disappeared on me. Wow.
0: So thank you, Ryan. (laughs) Maybe you can tell the rest of the story. Well, yeah, it's like we all kind of yelled to each other and we're like, okay, everyone's okay. And, I was like a little bit further up, I guess closer to our original camp and yeah, you know, it's like Justin was helping Nick and I was like I got to I got to get Justin's boots like that was like weighing heavily on my mind for for a few minutes. Um so I ran back and got those and then I think it was like we extricated Nick and he Oh, and then the the next thing, the big thing, was like, we need to get our stoves. That was, like, really important. So, uh, you know, Nick, his neck was pretty tweaked from, well, from, yeah, getting tossed down the glacier. So uh, Nick kind of crawled into Justin's broken-down tent, which was kind of still standing. Um, and then Justin and I like just started digging where the mid was and grabbed, I think we just grabbed like one of our stoves and kind of ran back to Justin's Mm. tent and it was still dark. And um, we just kind of all sat in there and made a cup of coffee because we were like, well, we're, we're not going to really do anything (laughs) for the next hour. So we just sat in there and, oh yeah, we grabbed the arrow press um, And we we sat in Justin's broken-down tent. And we all made a cup of coffee and just tried to chill out for a minute. And luckily, this happened at like 4.30 in the morning, so it was dawn pretty quickly. Yeah, as soon as dawn came, it was like, okay, well, we kind of need to take stock of our situation here. Um, in the ever-increasing storm, right, Ryan? Yeah, it was uh, – it was – not good outside. Um, the wind—it was like the snow was staying pretty consistent, but the wind was just like steadily ramping up. Hmm. So we realized the vast majority of our food was gone. Um, but now we're in a windstorm. We're, yeah. we're in a windstorm. It is savage out. Like we
3: can't even—we can't even move our camp if we want to, and we're just hanging below out below the face. That just like tried to kill us this morning. And we're like, okay, <laughs> I'd like to move camp, but I can't move camp. And then, and then we're like, uh, oh, also where is our food? And we had had our food so smartly in these rubber made bins, nicely organized. Ryan had taken such great efforts to give us a whole system as to how to choose our camp food. Right. I had sweet and savory. Expertly crafted. The Air blast had thrown them over, over, over a thousand feet away from us. Over half of our food was gone. So we're kind of like, okay, better uh, be prompt with sending out a message to our pilot. Thank you, Doug Brewer, Alaska West. He was right there for us. We're like, hey, Doug, um, we've been involved in an accident. We have food and fuel and we're okay, but we need to get picked up as soon as possible. And that's when
0: we started waiting. Well, so that, that happened on a Sunday. That whole day went by. Um, the snow stopped like that evening, right, Justin, but the, the wind just kept going. Yeah. But then the wind continued. And, uh, I think all of us were kind of having a little trouble sleeping that night. Um, and then, you know, the next morning rolled around and it, I think the wind was actually worse. It was like, probably blowing 40 or 50 on the surface of the glacier and like we just couldn't do anything um so we kind of hung around in the holding mid- the center of our cook tent up yeah yeah we would hold, yeah, holding it up so it doesn't break in the wind and then finally sometime later in the day uh justin and i were we were like we need to go get our gear cache from below the face. Like we don't know what the status of that is. And we're we're still hoping that this wind is going to die and we want to be ready to be picked up. So, so Nick stays at camp so he can kind of keep an eye on things and possibly stomp out a runway if the weather calms down. And Justin and I, with the wind in our faces, do the three and a half mile ski back up to camp and it was just so cold and windy. Like both of us were, were rightfully nervous of getting frostbite on our faces. Like, um, and it, you know, it took us, took us way longer than it normally would. Cause we were fighting the wind the entire way. And we, we got up there and there was probably about six inches of our gear cache left exposed because the face had just spin drifted so much that it had buried it. And so we, we dig all that stuff out and then of course realized that when we brought the gear cache up there, there were three of us. So Justin and I both skied down with 70 or more pounds on our backs, like just these crushing, crushing loads. And, um, you know, I remember like, just getting back to our base camp, this normally pretty fun little slope to ski down. Justin and I both sidestepped down in our skis. <laughs> uh, wow. And we, we got back to base camp and it was like someone had hit the switch and the wind completely died. <laughs> and Nick had, Nick had stomped out of runway and, uh, Doug had texted and, he said, "Send me weather and um you know glacier conditions or wind in the morning and uh and that was it doug Doug showed up at like eight thirty a m and just scooped us right out of there,
2: totally wild um so you guys left, obviously for good reason um and then you were back in New Hampshire uh now had that been me i think probably i just would have never returned to mount (laughs) neocola i maybe would have had my fill before we left though we uh
3: we all signed on to nick's airborne division (laughs) as we were calling ourselves and we had made a pact already and (laughs) had made a promise by leaving our thousands of dollars worth of fancy climbing gear at the Alaska, West Air. <laughs>
2: so we are pretty motivated to go back. So you guys didn't even, you didn't even have to like go home and forget about how horrible it was to be caught in an avalanche and then get excited again. You just went straight to excited
0: again. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, we experienced the horror <laughs> too. There was a little bit of a, that was a, that was a weird week. Like it was like I, I don't know, Justin, you probably had the same feeling, but like I came home, but it was like I was still on the expedition. I, like my mind was still there. And, and we only ended up being home for like seven days.
3: Yeah. Well, we only, we, we were only home for seven days because we had no clue when the weather might be good or if good long enough. But um, it just like came to be this unbelievable, truly incredible weather window that I believe all of Alaska climbing experienced. But we'll, we will tell you, we were also, be it where we were in the world, on the edge of that good weather as well on our climb. But we just, uh, back at home, we went back to work for a few days and uh, just settled in and and tried to take stock of what had happened but i think that for me when i was thinking about it it was none of the dangers that were going to be present in my climb regardless of the accident that we experienced none of them none of that changed so if anything the reality was as we spoke about it that that east face which we had trigger on us because as we came to understand through assessing the face before we left that next morning. We got a clear view of that wall to see the crown line and we were able to trace it back to this massive Serac um, that was likely cleaved off and triggered some sort of reaction across this persisting weak layer. that was about four feet below the surface because we, were, we experienced an avalanche far greater than what was deposited from that storm that we were um, camping through. And so if anything, it got safer to be under the east face. And then we strategized that we were not comfortable with camping under the east face, but because the north wall is a wall and so steep that there's not going to be avalanches on us besides spindrift. And so, if we were to just stop and you know spend maybe one night below the East Face, which was now safer than it ever was, ski up and start climbing, that that was actually the approach we should have always done it with. And so, with that resolution, and you know the the uh, freshly in our mind and in our experience, and even you know feeling strong from just being there and skiing and seeing it and wanting to climb it, like I was just ready to go back and and try it, you know.
2: Gotcha. Well, um, gosh, I guess if this
1: were like a play, this would be a good moment for an interlude. (laughs) In fact, yes, let's take a quick break from Mount Neocola for a few messages from the Cutting Edge supporting team. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and now lightweight trail shoes, LOA is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make LOA boots simply more. 2021 is PolarTech's 30th anniversary of making performance fabrics, and to celebrate, they're kicking off a new era in support of our sport. If you've been around for a while, you'll remember the PolarTech Challenge grants which sent legendary climbers like Steve House and Doug Scott on expeditions around the world. Now, in celebration of their 30-year anniversary, they're bringing back the Challenge Grants to fund an entirely new generation of adventurers. More information will be coming soon. Stay tuned at Polartech Fabric on Instagram and Facebook. Gnarly Nutrition's newest product, the carb-based Fuel 2.0, is the all-in-one fueling solution for long days on the trails, in the mountains, or at the crag. Discover the ins and outs of Gnarly's brand new product, Fuel 2.0, during a free Gnarly e-clinic. Visit GoGnarly.com to register for the free clinic and to pick up your own bag of Fuel 2.0. Now, back to the story.
2: We'll just keep on rolling here. Because what I'm really excited to talk about and to hear about is the climbing on the face itself. Because I had a chance to talk with Topher about it you know, when he went in there, I think it was like 95 or 96 or something. And he, he was describing what at the time felt very futuristic, doing hard aid climbing and then stepping out of your aiders into hard mixed climbing and then swinging onto these like steep daggers and doing ice. And he just said it was really gymnastic and really, um, just super cool climbing. So could you guys just sort of walk me through the pretty much the climb up until their high point?
0: Yeah, I can take the beginning. Um, so, so yeah, in, I guess on our, our second day on the glacier, we skied up there and started heading up the initial snow fields, which um, there was a mixed pitch to get into the snow fields. And, these snowfields are not like huge snowfields. You're still kind of climbing. Um, there would be like these little, little steps in them. And we were hauling a bag. Um, you know, we had kind of decided to go what we were calling a uh, big wall alpine style. <laughs> so what we would do is, um, one person, would lead and the other two would follow um jugging or micro tracking whatever and someone would have to deal with the the haul bag so that was kind of a hassle up those snow fields and i think we made it on the first day probably about 800 feet or so eight to nine hundred feet and we just didn't want to get too greedy that day so we we set up a nice camp we used our our ice hammock that we had so kind of made a ledge big enough to get the the three-person first slide on and just settled in for that night thinking you know we had made a decent progress we were happy to be on the wall and relatively safe and uh yeah i kind of went to sleep that night and woke up to some some wind the next morning and uh Yeah, Justin, you want to take it from there for a little bit? Yeah,
3: we um, also uh, shout out to Nick, who, our climbing partner, um, who was carrying the haul bag up these 800 foot ice snowfields that are like on average maybe 65, 70 degrees. So no easy rig. And he's got this thing on his back. And uh, man, He's just a strong son of a gun. But um, that night, even when we're on this tiny little ledge, just imagine, you know, like a gully, right? Not a place you want to be necessarily, but it's the easiest way up this part of the wall. Um, and then we just have this upper 3,500, 3,700 feet of mountain above us that just starts to go into a cloud that night. And it just mm-hmm. saw, uh, soon after, Starts downdrafting and dumping snow behind this little boulder we're hiding behind in the gully, and so it starts to just you know endlessly build up behind our hideout and push us off and put you know so we're having to get up every hour. That wasn't Uh, that was the the following night. So that was the following night, but that's what it was building up to. It was no, it was like tumultuous weather, unclimbable weather for the whole day
2: gotcha
3: we woke up to a windstorm and the first thing we had happen to us is we had our um <laughs> 1.7 liter reactor msr reactor stove get swept off the mountain
2: bye-bye oh, no. stove. <laughs> like, now
3: we only have one stove and like for our whole <laughs> expedition and we're like okay back to rescue back to why people you know might not want to climb here you're in a storm how do you get out you don't have a you only have one stove bring two stoves because like if we had dropped that stove, um, right. we're just SOL. So we were very, very, very careful with that stove. But you know, we 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 didn't think about quitting. But man, it really started to plague the trip right at the beginning. But we didn't care. So we just start cooking with the tiny little wind burner now. Our trusty wind burner, best stove. It hooked us up. But um, so we only had one stove. And was it that day, Ryan, that Nick? Had uh, volunteered to fix some ropes for us in a weather window. We had a short couple hours during that
0: day. I yeah. Believe it was that day. Yeah. So you and Nick went to do that, and I tried to kind of spruce up camp as best as possible. And and so those guys fixed a couple pitches above and and came back. Um, so this is this is the afternoon of day two on the wall, and and yeah, this this cloud moves in and then it starts snowing. Um, so we, you know, we ended up spending night two in the same camp and that was the night that, that got pretty bad. Yeah. It was like every two hours, one of us would have to get out and shovel around the tent.
3: And it wake uh, me up cause I was the outside guy. So they'd be like the two guys would be sleeping nice and sound on the on the other side, maybe not so sound, but they're sleeping. And I'm like, uh, guys, uh, I think we got to go out again. But honestly, we were having a blast. Though we were still having fun, weren't we, Ryan? We were like, we don't want it to sound like all doom and gloom. Like this is what we had signed up for. We were psyched. We were on the wall. Oh yeah. And uh, those pitches that Nick and I had climbed, yeah, that was like great M five M six terrain. We had climbed that in our previous attempt which is the funny part because we blew past where we were with our wall kit,
0: but we had staying power this time. Yeah. And then, so, so day three, we get up and kind of get a slow start to the morning and we didn't talk about going down at all. We were like, okay, well the ropes are up there, I guess time to start jugging. So we ascended those ropes and, uh, and then I let a, A pitch that in 2019 was easier, but now the snow had kind of flushed out and was like pretty thin up there. So I led up there onto a snow rib formation that we had talked about camping on.
3: But first, Ryan, but first, I led one of the most beautiful cruxes. Oh, um, yeah, you're right. On that first section of the wall. Right. Which is this M6, um, like layback, hooking perfect rock i mean if we're like talk about the the quality it's just like polished beautiful difficult for your feet so you have to imagine it's like polished over millennia by the upper wall just like dumping snow and rock and storm debris on it and so it's just like marble it's this black rock and i think you know like it seems like it's medusa's the name because it's just like dark and there's some green in the rock and of course there are these big uh formations of rock coming down the wall that looked like a massive giant Medusa snake. But I just had to mention that because that for me is a pitch. I had watched Nick climb back in 2019 enviously. And I happened Mm. to have like a little clip of that on my computer and I'd be like, damn, I want to climb that pitch. And so I was up to bat and, uh, that was just, uh, thanks for letting me take that guys. That was just an awesome, well-protected, um, until, you ran into what was to become the epitome of this route, which was just choked off, tiny cracks um, that you had to work so hard to get, with great difficulty, these tiny little pitons and hooks into. Mm. Then Ryan led his, like he was saying, was much different. Um, it was the face was much drier, devoid of of some of the snow that we had experienced before, and so he led us up to this rib to camp, right, Ryan. Built a beautiful camp.
0: And then the next morning, Justin, I mean, you must have led us through another four pitches probably. It was Justin did these two rising traverse snow pitches. And we came around this little corner, which was where we had stopped in 2019. And Justin just did this great job of leading us through this steeper section that was, I think, probably a little... A little harder than any of us had thought it would be. But Justin did a great job getting us through that and then led us up kind of a couple more snowfields, you know, getting us closer to this headwall. And that night we arrived on this pretty steep snowfield and and finally got to use our inflatable portaledges. How, how high were you guys up the face at this point? 25
3: 2700 feet up the face yeah yeah probably
2: so you guys still had pretty significant way to go
0: oh yeah
3: yeah we were a little
2: less than halfway um (laughs) and what day was it this was like the fourth night
0: yeah yeah um so we we got up to justin's anchor there and realized that this is what we brought the ledges for like we the ice hammock's not going to cut it. So we, we build a secondary anchor and like Justin had described before the, the anchoring up there uh, was a, it was a process. It's like a lot of hammering and searching around, stringing together pieces that are kind of far apart and tied off. Yeah. Yeah. And, we were all pretty tired. Half hammered in bird's beaks. Yeah, yeah. Um the, the secondary anchor that we made was was kind of a hassle and and actually one of the knife blades that was in that anchor kind of fell most of the way out while while I was like reconfiguring this anchor. So that was a little unnerving.
3: Yeah. It was more than a few times that you'd be hammering a piton and you would hear the creaking of the rock that you were
0: trying to make an anchor out of moving and you're you abandon that process real quick and go to another crack and I guess we were just kind of tired and like setting up those portal edges it just seemed so difficult the wind was blowing and I think they're kind of more meant to be set up on like a real vertical wall and the thing is like the wall that we were anchored to is vertical but then it came down into this like 70 degree snow so it's kind of this like weird situation to set them up the plan was that justin and nick were gonna put their two ledges together and i was gonna be in a separate one and we we realized that their two ledges i guess it was because of the snow field whenever those guys would both try to get in the ledges would fold in on each other and likely user error
3: we were like twisted like we were we were turned we were we were worked out and so like the wind is just like blowing these things in our face and we haven't eaten in hours and we climbed super hard terrain and we're just like (laughs) so like i can't put it on it was a couple of things it was probably partially us like because
0: i don't want to put it all on the pods because the pods are awesome oh no i think it was us yeah I think our our minds were like a little shot at that point. And so Justin gets his set up and I get mine set up. And in this weird like duplex, Nick digs out a ledge in the snow, like hacks it out right above my portal edge and gets in my bivy sack right above me. A foot and a half wide ledge. Yeah. his feet are hanging off. Yeah. Nick just – Just really took took one for the team. He's like, no, I'm
3: fine, guys. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. This is awesome.
0: Yeah, awesome. And then Justin and I get in our portal edges, and we we got to see this beautiful sunset. And both Justin and I had this sensation of like sailing the high seas. Like the wind would come, and your the inflatable portal edge would kind of ripple with it. And yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I personally was like a little freaked out hanging from this anchor of knife blades and peckers like right when i got in but i just kind of told myself well you're already in this thing and there's nothing you can really do about it now so you may as well just go to sleep yeah
3: and i had the security of a flaring number two so i was like really much further ahead of ryan
2: awesome i love trusting my life to like peckers and flaring number twos (laughs) oh but yeah
3: we were sailing the high seas that night and uh we woke up and it was still ripping wind so that's kind of what i was saying like we're in between the weather we're going in and out of clouds um and it was just hammering us you know for for these few days like we get little windows of okay weather but um and the okay weather was better than okay it was just like what a blessing to be up there. And and I don't think you get anything better than what we got, but just to paint a picture, it was, it was blowing when Nick started to lead us up the next day. And now we're like, we're getting into it. We're getting into the Medusa's head wall, And this is, we've been looking at this shield from down on the glacier now for two years. And just to be getting closer and closer, we were just getting so excited to be going up. Um, So, Nick leads us up a pitch of like M5 terrain corners and, you know, mantles and gets us up to this arcing steepening slab pitch that maybe was like 70 degrees, but then what took to a vertical headwall, but that 70 degree terrain with its down sloped um, protruding kind of stairs you know, imagine stairs, but, you know, like half and, you know, a half an inch to put your boot on. So Nick takes his crampons off only stairs to a guy like Nick and he's barehanded climbing up there, you know, like mind you were on this North wall in Alaska and uh, the wind's blowing and I, I can't even believe what I'm seeing. It was just awesome. Better than television, live action. It was the best thing <laughs> to watch. And Nick so <laughs> heroically leads us up, you know, just, working so hard for gear there's just no you know there's good gear but man you you need to know what you're looking for gets up and gets us to the base of the head wall where he then continues on the next pitch as it's steepening to almost near overhanging at you know steps out over this terrain out of these corners Mm -hmm. and gullies and he gets us into and out of one of these flaring bomb bays that's leading us into the main drainage, which we imagine, um, is where, uh, the previous party have been encountering likely icicles that, you know, they were describing, but this season it was dry. So Nick gets us anchored up there, gives me the hauler, And because it's such hard terrain, our, our, you know, and just where we're climbing at, we're taking, uh, as well as the anchors, we're taking two, three hours sometimes. Lead a pitch. And so Whoa. there's our whole day, right? So we had, yeah. meanwhile, Nick and I had been climbing up two rope lengths, putting up like 60, 65 meter pitches. And Ryan had moved our camp up uh, about 70 meters, sadly, <laughs> above where we had been the night before when we were sailing the high seas. But thankfully, Ryan was actually able to. Um, go to work, r- what, Ryan, you worked for hours on that thing. Well, Nick and
0: I fixed ropes. I did. Yeah. I, uh, I realized that that was the one camp that we weren't going to have to use the ice hammock. And, um, yeah, the, it was like those guys were at work up above and I was just, uh, down there digging and hacking away. And I was just so happy to welcome those guys back to this, uh, pretty nice camp that I had made this <laughs> you know, we kept saying there's plenty of hard work to go around. Oh, there was. And this the reason this is part of the strategy, though, because this is at
3: the base of the headwall that continues into terrain unknown. And so this is the last snow band we can see. And so we just like we need snow to melt, you know, for water, we need something to like try and stand on, you know, just to get some rest. And so Ryan just, you know, kicked butt and dug us out this little hole. But when we, when we're talking about it, like it's a big thing, you know, what was it like three, three feet wide. So it was like, it's not that big. Right. Where Ryan set up his pod, uh, his G7 pod again, that night as well, because there wasn't enough room on the ledge. And Nick and I were in the tent where Nick was telling me that he was um, feeling like he was rolling off the edge. So you know, never were these ledges very big. Um, but that was a beautiful night as well because we saw the Northern lights, which was just the most spectacular thing to witness Mm. from our vantage point, just truly beautiful. And, uh, that brought us to the next day. Now it's, it's game on if it was ever game on because we're at the head wall now, and this is the steepest terrain that we know of on the wall. And so we jug up the two pitches and, but before that, we had decided that we were done with our haul bag. So we threw it off the wall.
2: <laughs> are you where are you where are you on like the Ken and Harvey Topher Donahue route at this point? Is this kind of the end of their their terrain?
3: No, no this is still this is in the this is into the stuff that that was the most futuristic that those guys were climbing. And we found evidence the whole way up this, this day. So we were right on the same line because it's like, you know, at least to us, there's only so many ways that we could climb that mountain. And so like we were drawn to the same terrain that those guys were drawn to. And, uh, so we threw the bag off We're about 3000 feet up the wall. And, uh, that's where I started to launch out onto the meat and potatoes of this head wall. And I'm in making crazy moves, making uh, 510 terrain, holding on to, you know, completely coming out of these. I guess to to slow down and describe the terrain, we're actually in this big chimney system that's the main drainage for the upper mountain, I imagine, and completely polished. Uh, Everything's kind of downturning. But every now and again on the outsides, as you're stemming up this chimney system, on the outsides, you get kind of these big, beautiful handholds that would pull me up and out of these overhangs as the chimney would constrict and pinch back and I'd have to exit the chimney and surmount. And I was doing every trick in the book to make this, you know, climbable. So I would be hanging off my harness, standing in my atriase, trying to get good gear so I could just make the free climbing sane for me. So that i could climb this and and feel like you know there was some semblance of safety in such a remote location and so i climbed this terrain for two pitches and this gets us into um where it opens up more into the upper mountain and that's when we start to uh, really feel like we're getting up on the wall but ryan was carrying my backpack jugging with both backpacks on him right ryan what a uh, workout! He just kept
0: saying, "Well, I'm getting my workout today." Yeah, I, I, I could skip leg day. Um, I, I yeah, I would put my backpack on and clip Justin's backpack to my belay loop, and just jug on up and and then Nick would clean the gear. So you were doing all the fun parts. Oh yeah, yeah. Saying. No, it was it was great. I mean, it's funny even just jugging I could still appreciate like how much work Justin put into that pitch and boy if I could go back and and top rope that pitch it would be great but I probably never will I definitely never will Uh, (laughs) but yeah yeah and also you could appreciate it because you guys gave me heroic three-hour belays
3: as I (laughs) as I very timidly tiptoed my way up that
0: right yeah Nick and I were getting pretty pretty chilly Um, and so, you know, Justin, like a hero gets us out of this chimney feature to, to where, where it starts to open up a little bit. And now we've decided that the terrain should allow for us to each climb with our own backpack on now, if it comes to it, we said, you know, the leader just clips off a pack and, whatever, the seconds will deal with it. So
3: so I, I let out... What time is it though right now, Ryan? Isn't it like, isn't it already
0: seven at night? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, six or seven um, on on day six. So we're all feeling a little tired.
3: But this is also where we had found our um, evidence again, yet again, of the previous team's descent, where they so had so boldly at the top of this head wall descended off of a single piton a single z-ton
0: yeah Uh, incredible so yeah there's there's kind of only one one way to go that we we think will get us where we want so i i start leading and and luckily i'm now out to the right of these guys and my rope is kind of running or the the two ropes are kind of running underneath a little buttress a little bit and i i'm climbing up and I test part of the left wall, um, this big block that seems like it's pretty well attached to the wall. Like it's, it's like part of the wall and I give it a little bit of a test and start moving by and this whole thing just releases like, I don't know, Justin, like a small oven probably. Yeah, wow. small oven with with two dozen other football size rocks that
3: come down with it yeah so we're below witnessing this horror in slow motion and we're just like tied tight to an anchor there's nowhere to go and so it was a real nightmare scenario um and it passed we pa- passed us by and we were unscathed just a true miracle wow. and i'm talking like 10 feet away, this whole mass of stone and then bouncing stones that deflected within feet of us, uh, just Jeez. truly miraculous yet again. So now we're tense and yeah. it's late and yeah. we're tense uh-huh. and, uh, and we're now way up on the wall. We're on like the final quarter, you know, heading toward the final quarter. And, uh, we ended up climbing two more pitches of this terrain that like now we're on edge. Cause we're we think everything's loose as it really is everything yeah. starts to
0: deteriorate on us all the stone just goes to just goes to junk the character of the rock definitely changed and and so i did another pitch after that one and that the end of that second pitch that i led was the final evidence that we found of donahue and harvey is we found mm. these two knife blades strung together with a piece of webbing. I think all of us kind of saw that and we're like, man, is this where those guys spent that miserable night? Like this just seems so awful. So we go another pitch beyond that and find probably our maybe our worst bivvy. Um and at this point it's 11:30 or midnight and we're up there just like wow, hacking away um Nick gets it in his head that we really need to move this rock to make our ledge a little bit better. And, and we're in total agreement with him. Uh, And we, we try to get cams in behind it to pull this rock out. And Nick and I are both hammering at it with our hammers, trying to get it to move. And so we managed to get the tent up with part of it in the void. And so Justin and I sleep in that. And Nick, Again, just does like this kind of weird bivvy, like right above us, not in an ideal spot. We kind of sleep in a little bit the next morning because we had just been up so late. And also, right? We haven't had any sun in days. We're on this north wall,
3: just like looking at the sun rising, wishing we were getting some sun.
0: Yeah. The longest amount of time any of us have spent in the Alaska Range without putting on sunscreen or wearing sunglasses. It was like. Those were just buried in the backpack. And we would look up into our left and we could start to see
3: the summit or like the summit ridge gendarmes. It was unbelievable to be looking up and thinking that we were going to crest out up on this thing. But man, were our hearts broken when we, after climbing up a snow rib, slightly cornice snow rib on our first pitch that Nick let us out on that next morning. To see the looming 700, day seven, this looming 700 foot tall, dead vertical choss cliff that was waiting for us.
2: Right. Yeah, this is, in my opinion, this is one of the most interesting moments of the story because, you know, you're going off of what Topher and Kennan had written, which was that there was 800 feet of easy, relatively easy climbing to the summit. And, uh, I guess, I guess it was just a confusion of appearances because it looks, I mean, even when I look at the picture that they sent and like the pictures you guys sent, it does look like that. It looks like you're going to pop over left onto this ridge and then you're going to be kind of ridge surfing, low angle-ish terrain to the summit. But, um, as Nick told me, this was just, super difficult harrowing terrain
0: yeah um but after after that snow rib that justin had talked about and we're at the base of this head wall nick really had the vision and was you know he was like i think we should go head right and we kind of had this brief discussion about it and we all decided yeah, yeah. Okay. Terrain
3: so complex that it was difficult for us to cipher which way to go. Like we're in a, a, you know, a quandary. Like we don't even know where to go. Hardly. It's like that disheartening. You're like on top of this wall, and you're like, huh, where? You know, we weren't going
0: down, but we're like none of this looks easy, right? And and the whole evening of day six, we had kind of been doing these rising traverses. So it the commitment level is starting to add up here, like. Now we're at that point that usually comes in an alpine climb where it, it starts to make sense to to go up instead of go down. And Nick leads these two back-to-back rising traverses of not terribly, like, technically difficult terrain, but but scary and slabby and super difficult to find gear and loose. And just, you know, it all adds up to, like, these are two, two pretty hard pitches. And, uh, for Justin and I, Nick had yelled back, like it, it doesn't even make sense for you guys to like jug these. So, so Justin and I are following these pitches on our micro tractions, um, doing some extreme micro tracking.
3: Well, is this also Ryan, has he gotten to that black tower because that's like vertical, you know, and we're belayed below this vertical corner that Nick is, there's no other way around and you have to climb directly up on it. And we're completely, you know, gun shy from our day before and Ryan pulling the oven off at us. And now yet again, Nick is having to stem and make wild moves to mantle out and over this twenty-foot tall pillar
0: that is completely, you know, a question as to what's keeping it on the mountain. And so these rising traverses kind of bring us to this this point where Nick is pretty sure that it's going to be one pitch to the ridge, and Nick is psyched, and that has to be maybe I would say the most stressful belay I've ever been in. Is that when you were hit
3: in the head, Ryan? Oh, I had been hit in the head. Is that when that you were hit in the head, or you were hit in the head earlier that morning by a football?
0: Right. Yes. Um, which had kind of sent my neck into a little bit of a weird spasm, um, which which had slowly kind of started to recover throughout that day
3: it's because it's because see it would crush a normal person's bones <laughs> but ryan eats a lot of ice cream and there's a lot of calcium in ice cream and so because of that he's gained extra bone density which allowed him to be the one to hit by rocks and walk away on
2: well, thank goodness, because otherwise he probably would have broken his neck.
3: <laughs> yep. So there you go. Eat your ice cream and your uh, ice cream. Walk, walk this world.
2: I don't want to cut you off here, but it's just, I, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting hearing you guys talk about this, because again, I, I talked with Nick, um, sort of just got his perspective on it, and um, what you're describing to me sounds essentially like just total horror show like i can't imagine ever going back there or ever like thinking of doing that myself and uh and yet here's a quote from nick everyone is asking me about the choss at the top but the rest was really good i keep saying the route will clean right up with more traffic but everyone else seems unconvinced that anyone will ever return it's like, he's thinking about other people going and doing this thing. And it's like, what I'm listening to, no one's going to go do that.
3: <laughs> well, there's also fixed anchors on the rappel. So the rappel line set up too. Oh, good. Yeah. There's, uh, well,
0: it's practically a sport climb then. Yeah. There's like eight to 10 anchors on a 5,000 foot face. Yeah. It was, um, it was a horror show and it was
3: not fun at the time, but we had no, like we were there. So we made the
2: best out of it. So you guys got up eventually through that last day. It was six, six pitches took 12 hours, according to Nick. And you guys got up and you were like a hundred feet away from the summit, but you didn't end up tagging it. So why, what, after that, like ginormous and incredible experience, how did you make the decision? not to go all the way to the summit what happened it was just
3: actually physically impossible because there was a gale wind coming up the east face um just driving ice particles all the way up the mile into your eyeballs even with goggles on we were just getting crushed by the wind and be it a hundred foot elevation gain it was still a thousand feet across maybe 800 feet across to the summit um So we're on the spine of a ridge having gained this height of land. And the most amazing thing was, is we on the West face of this aspect, it was windless. But as soon as you got onto that ridge, it was an insane killer wind. So we had already, we spent the night, let's just say the decision made itself. Like we weren't, you know, we were looking for a way down. We had climbed the wall. And we were happy to be where we were. And the summit would have been great, but uh, our lives were much more important. Like we were strung out, you know, yeah, out of food, nearly out of fuel. If the weather had been right, you better believe we would have gone for it. But the weather was just deadly. There's no logical, you know, way to convince yourself that it was a good idea to even try.
2: Yeah. So. We kind of did like a pretty extended play-by-play here, Um, maybe a little bit more so than we do in in typical uh, interviews. But I think it's worth it because what I'm trying to paint the picture of or hope that, that the listeners are kind of getting here is this is a big, difficult, remote, serious wall. And just given the nature of you guys, you kind of like terse New Hampshire folk uh, we probably aren't going to hear a ton about it, you know, like it's not going to make the the mainstream media. Um, but this is a pretty serious wall. And I mean, Kennan and Topher are, are really, really talented climbers. You guys are really talented climbers. And after all of the work that you guys have put in over a number of attempts and the attempt of those guys, I mean, the summit remains untouched and that's to me that's pretty impressive and i kind of wonder if if someone else will go back or if you guys even would have any interest i mean is it just sort of academic like the last hundred feet to the summit or is there a part of you that's like crap i really want to go back there and
3: i don't want to go back onto mount
2: neocola no and
0: but i think that i think that it, it definitely somebody could do it yeah. And one of the things I think that would make a difference now is it was unknown to us how to get down from that high up the mountain. And initially, we had intended to go over to, to the west face um, where Ken and Harvey had done the the only other ascent of the mountain. And like Justin said, the decision got made for us. so So we just started going down the east face. Which was which had avalanched on you guys, yeah, and it was it was a little scary to uh, just commit to that, and we we found this this great way down, and it it really worked out, and I think you know that could maybe make a difference to future parties is at least knowing that there is this descent there that uh, comes together pretty well the descent was, um,
3: uh, what a blessing. We were just, um, you know, like for us and the summit and like any, you know, first ascent or not first ascent of the wall, like we, what we had found was an adventure that allowed us to dig as deep as I wanted to dig. Um, and some more, which is kind of the point, like that you go and you know, that you're going to go to a place where you it's going to be a true mortal test and we found that on this quest up the wall so like the fact that we had survived the ascent of the wall with all of our mishaps with falling stones and difficult dangerous leads with thin with thin gear and all the hard work we we're just like to get up and over was just like a dream and it was incredible how well our descent went I've had, and Ryan has had, and Nick has had, as well as many, many people who are probably listening have had just absolute horrendous epics on descents, and we couldn't have been luckier in the terrain that we were given off of this knife edge ridge, and so our first descent, we can barely even, our first rappel, we can barely even hear each other talking. The wind is just taking our words from us, and we sling this gendarme, and down Ryan goes, and, uh, you can't look down, but for a second, this is not even being dramatic. This is, it was so windy up there and we get down to the next rappel, and the wind's a little easier. And the next one is nearly gone. And the anchors are difficult to, uh, to build, but every rappel we're finding one for 10 repels and then, or nine repels. And then we're eased onto this, I don't know, 50 degree ramp which is kind of just perched on the side of this ridge, you know, like a suspended ramp um, that just has cliffs below it. And just to the right of that, the the skier's right is the big Siroc that had calved off in what we called the Great Gully, which it had carved out. Um, And it's just an ancient gully. But so we're like up above this, maybe a thousand feet and we're descending down this ramp, down, down, down for thousands of feet, 5,000 foot descent. And we're down with one more rappel over a cliff band. And we're down in eight hours from the beginning of our morning. And within another half hour, we're back at our gear. And for us, like to live through that, to experience that, you know, if somebody can tag the summit, that's beautiful. But like we got what we were looking for on that. And it was just so thankful for all the blessings and the chances to be able to do something like that.
2: Well. That seems like a pretty good place to finish up there, and really, it it just speaks to the type of climbers you guys are. But I do wonder, people are always looking for like, oh, the next big prize in in alpinism, and I wonder if someday down the road, you know, maybe another twenty five years from now, because it seems like that's how long it takes between attempts, uh, if some other Alpinists out there will will attempt to take it even to the next level.
3: I think that what I think that why we are the way we are in regards to our experience is because the reality of climbing a wall like that is so dangerous. Why would we ever climb to do something for anyone else? And people will do what people will do, but the reason we are the way we are is because. It is dangerous and we've accepted to go do something because of the joy of it, not because we want an end result, because we want to be immersed in a wild place and to be with each other as friends and to just do some crazy camping and put in some good hard work. Couldn't have said
0: it better myself.
1: For those who want to learn more about the Neocola Mountains, I recommend the AAJ's 2016 recon article which you can find at publications.americanalpineclub.org. Here you can also find Topher Donahue's brief account of that visionary 1995 attempt on the wall. Thanks to Hilleberg the tent maker, for making the cutting edge possible. Check out the full line of Alaska-worthy tents at hilleberg.com. Thanks also to Loa Boots, Polartec, and Gnarly Nutrition for their additional support of this show. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, Wishing you happy climbs.